0: Hey, everybody, welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. I'm Katie, Katie Morton. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist. I'm here to answer all of your mental health questions. If you're looking to get one answered, maybe you keep asking it and it never gets picked, or maybe you'd like a more private way to ask your question, I do answer them over on my Patreon page. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Katie Morton. I have live streams every month for those in the $20 tier and above. You're charged monthly. The live streams last for like three hours. There's also extra video content over there a Discord server, all that good stuff. So you can go check that out. And it also starts at $1. So if you just want to participate in the live streams, you can do that for just a buck a month. Okay. Without further ado, let's jump into today's questions. Question number one says, hi, Katie. My question is about emotion regulation. I'm already excited. I think, dot, dot, dot. I think I have learned to tolerate and move through fairly bad anxiety. That's amazing. And I'm getting better at noticing and stopping depression spirals too. Yay. But I still have a big problem. Sometimes the depression and anxiety mash together and creates whirlwind of grief, sadness, fear, and shame. And I feel like I'm literally exploding inside. That's agitated depression, we call it, but we'll talk about this. It's like the inside of me is a house on fire and I'm screaming, desperate to get out, but there's no way out. I need help. I need safety. I need something to save me. But there's nothing. Online resources and my therapist all say the same things. Ask yourself if the thoughts are helpful. Take deep breaths. Remind yourself that feelings end. Exercise daily. Distract with something else. Use a way to blanket journal, meditate. I do all these things. If it's only anxiety or only depression that I'm fighting, these options usually work. And I'm so grateful But those horrible, scary times when the intensity of the emotion is just so overwhelming that I would literally give anything to make it stop. I just can't figure out what to do in those times. Please, please help. These keep happening and I don't know how to stop it. For reference, I've been in therapy for two years and I started medication a month ago. I do not have a partner or safe relationships with family and I miscarried my baby girl in January. I'm so sorry. I'm fighting so hard to get better. But every time I start to, I just get hit by this emotional truck all over again. Thank you for any insights and for all the kindness and support you give every week. Of course. Okay. You're right. Your therapist is giving you all the tools, all the things that I would say to do. But here's the kicker. Now, anxious depression or agitated depression or whatever you want to call it, essentially this, I'm, I'm just going to be really candid with you. As a therapist, we call that a danger zone. And it's not like exciting, like I went to the dangers. No, not like that. More like it's a very dangerous way to feel. That's when, in my experience, and I would, I believe through research and data, it's a potential suicide risk during that time because it's so overwhelming. And this is why talk therapy, CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy, DBT when I practice dialectical behavior therapy, all those things don't don't work for everybody it works for like 40%. So the 60% of us like kind of get help. Like you're like, okay, if it's just depression, just anxiety on their own, we're good. It's all gravy. I can use these things. I feel better. But this other piece isn't being cared for by that style. And so my encouragement is actually to try something different. I'm wondering if some somatic tools could be helpful. Now somatic is if just bare bones. Somatic is experience we have in our bodies when something like this happens like how does it feel in your body can we move through it maybe as we're feeling this we're punching maybe we're kicking maybe we're shaking it out maybe we we run around really oddly looking in our home or we do a funny dance or anything like that to kind of move that energy out of our bodies maybe we try that maybe we try emdr i'm actually starting emdr myself um, again for complete candor and I haven't started the tapping stuff, the like buzzing or the bilateral stimulation as they call it. But the, my therapist, cause I did some, uh, I did a consultation with her first to see if she was a good fit because what I'm primarily working on is grief and her, what, cause we've lost like three people in my family, uh, four people in the last three years. Um, anyways, what she told me is the EMDR isn't just for trauma. I know I didn't know this. Um, but it's about reactivity and us feeling overwhelmed, which is kind of maybe what's happening here for you, right? You're like, I'm a house on fire inside and I can't get out. So that extreme emotional response could be lessened through EMDR because what she's told me and what I'm going to be working through, I'm only like three sessions in, so got to give it time. But what I'm going to hopefully learn are other ways to soothe and to calm and to bring myself back to Neutral or okay after feeling and reacting and feeling very intense. And so I bring that up to say that also you had a miscarriage and that has potential to be a trauma for you. Um, that doing EMDR could maybe help you be less reactive to this experience and help you have other tools or resources or places you can kind of go in your head to help you deal with the fact that you feel like a house on fire inside. So, all in all, my encouragement is to try another type of therapy. Now, does that mean you have to leave your therapist? No. Could you? Yes. If you want to shake it up, you totally could. But we could see another therapist like take a week off from yours and see someone else. Or we could add someone on. Or we could tell our therapist, hey, I need some different tools. This isn't helping. I am thinking maybe more somatic-based stuff, or if, if they practice EMDR, they can do that with you as well. But those could be some ways that we could better handle that and and feel not feel so overcome by it, or almost like it's like a bulldozer and just comes and sweeps through our life and like fucks things up, right? I want you to feel like it's not so intense, and I don't want you to feel as reactive. Okay, so there's that. Second thing that I thought of when I was reading this question is the fact that you're on venlafaxine. So you've started therapy and you've been on it for, I think it was a month or so. Yeah, a month ago. Now, medication can take longer to show effect, but I would argue it's already not doing its job because if you've been on it for a month and you've had one of these episodes, let's say in the last week or two, I think you shouldn't be having this like, ooh that extreme jump into the agitated depression feeling as much. It should, even if it's still happening, it should be lessened. And so I let your psychiatrist know, I don't think the medication's working. Um, Maybe we can look into something else or maybe they can add something on. I know we can be nervous about medication. Um, Obviously let them know if you have any side effects, ask them what side effects you should be looking for. Ask all your questions. But I feel like that's a long, like a month, and by the time this podcast comes, that'll be like a month and a half. I feel like by that point, we should be feeling some effects of it and it should be helpful. And if it's not, then what are we doing? You know, um, then there's no point to it. So we should either switch it up or try something, you know, something like that. Okay. Um, yeah. Hang in there. I'm so sorry. This feeling is horrible. That. Uh, my some of my patients would describe it like they just wanted to like rip their skin off. It was so uncomfortable um, and just feeling so angry and irritated at everything but like anger in sometimes. That's why it's the danger zone. It can be really scary. Um, if you are feeling suicidal, please let your therapist know. Please create a safety plan. Please reach out. Um, you're not alone in this. We will get this to go away. We just have to try something different. The more resource-based structured homework type of stuff isn't really getting it. It's helping it, it, but it's not the one-two punch that we need for this agitated depression, which I will be honest with you, is trickier because it's both together, right? It's the depression and anxiety happening at the same time. And so it's just a little different in the way that we would navigate it and the way we would treat it. And so all the tools that you have that help with the others don't help when they happen together, but we'll get you to a place where it does. Okay. Okay. So somatic EMDR. I think there's something in there that might be helpful. Okay. Now, there's a comment on this as, as an add on about emotions. I suffer from anxiety and depression, and usually jogging along feeling mildly depressed, sad, fed up with life and the world now that I'm on Venlafaxine, while trying to get a numb neutral zone where I feel nothing. Oh, trying to get to a numb. But why do I sometimes deliberately make myself feel terrible? and really badly depressed on purpose. It makes no sense. Okay, a couple of thoughts here. Now, I love this question because um, they're usually jogging along and trying to get to a numb or neutrals. I don't, a numb zone is not a, I was just talking to my neighbor um, that we're doing The Artist Way, that book that we've been working on together. We're doing that workbook together. And she was talking about when she was growing up, how she uh, went to this like eating disorder group and because she struggles with um, food. And they asked her about feelings. she did like a feelings chart. And she was like, where's numb on here? She asked, she like raised her hand. She's like, where's numb? That's what I feel. And they're like, that's not a feeling. And she's like, yeah, it is. I feel it all the time. It's numb. And they were like, no. And I bring that up only to say that numb isn't a feeling in neutral, not good nor bad. Just again, not cut off. It's like feelings kind of come and go, but we're not reacting. We're just or just chill. That could be the goal, but numb is not. Just putting it out there, okay? Because numb is that cut off, that disconnect. Now, okay, let's get into this actual question. Why would I make myself feel terrible deliberately? Uh, Two potential reasons. I have two hypotheses here. Number one is that feeling like shit is normal and comfortable, and we don't understand the other options like it doesn't feel good to feel good right sometimes when we feel good we'll be like well they're just setting me up i'm gonna get relaxed and get vulnerable and then someone's gonna come and fuck my shit up right we can feel that way and so it can put us on edge to feel good okay so we feel bad on purpose because we know it it's comfortable we know what to expect hypothesis number two is that we deliberately make ourselves feel bad in a way we're kind of trying to like prove that we have a right to struggle. Okay, now hang with me if that doesn't make sense. Oftentimes when we struggle with depression, struggle with anxiety, struggle with a mental illness in general, we downplay it. So we minimize, we invalidate our experience. We tell ourselves, oh, you should feel better. What the hell's wrong with you? This isn't that big of a deal. Blah, 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 right? We go on and on about that. But if we feel bad in that moment when we really feel our worst and we just totally feel like shit, then we're like, well, you know, I think I do have a right to feel this way because I'm feeling it. It's bad. I think I have a right to really struggle. I think I have a right to reach out for help, right? And so by kind of letting ourselves or pushing ourselves into a dark, shitty place, and we're like, now I'm deserving of care. Now I can actually reach out. Now it all, you know, and we almost have to feel a certain level of shittiness in order to allow ourselves to get the help or to express it to people or all of those things. Does that make sense? So those are my two hypotheses. It's very common to do it, to make, to allow for ourselves to feel bad. And the mo- those are the most common ones I see. I don't want you to think anything's wrong with you. It's a very normal experience. Don't think that it makes you a bad person. It doesn't make it any less real. Sometimes we just stop fighting it so that we either, you know, we're more comfortable with it, or we finally feel like we can reach out and speak up and we are worthy of it. Okay. I hope that helps. Now, another add on says I have terrible mood swings. And at times I lose control over my emotions. Oh, sorry. Side note back one more thing. I've also heard from some of my patients that they'll say they'll let themselves feel like shit just to feel something. That's why numbness is not the goal. Because um, my self injury patients, my BPD patients, my eating disorder patients will sometimes say like, "Well, I just did that so I'd feel something." And so that could be why you like let yourself go down that path because you just want to feel something, right? I want to feel alive. I mean, fuck, you know, it can feel like we're so disconnected or things are so bad or I don't know, just so numbed out. We're like, I just want to feel something, okay? Now back to the add-on. It says, As an add-on, I have terrible mood swings and at time I lose control over my emotions and even some of my behaviors. I've been self-harming since I was uh, two to three years old and I'm now 21 and I can't stop. I turn the anger toward me every time something is upsetting. I also have an eating disorder and do a lot of exercise to try to not hurt myself. And at the moment, I'm having this meltdown slash crisis, and it just seems like I never get tired. But after I get back to quote unquote normal, I feel like my heart is weak and my entire body is in pain. What is your opinion on this? Thank you, Katie, for all that you do for us. Okay, so the mood swings. Okay, there's just so much to unpack here. Now, the feeling like you lose control over your emotions is probably why we self-injure and why we use our eating disorder to like regain sense of quote unquote control, now, the thing about emotions and probably the reason that this is feeling so bad and you're you're feeling angry and agitated is because you don't really let yourself feel anything. And when the harder we try to fight against our emotions, the harder we try to ignore them, we try to pretend everything's okay, we try to I don't know, only express the emotions that were deemed appropriate or a lady like or what a real man is. You know, we get, hear all these messages throughout our life about what it should look like, what we should be feeling, what we should, 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 da, 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 right? We should all over ourselves that we forget that emotions all are valid. They come in. We can look at them and say, hey, I recognize you, agitation. You get me in trouble. You start fights. You say things that we don't mean. I see you and I feel you and I understand, you know, we can do a little like process on it. I can be like, I'm agitated because I felt disconnected, which really means that I'm like kind of feeling abandoned or on my own. I hate that feeling. Oh, that's why. All right. And we say, hi, agitation. I know where you're coming from. I hear you. I feel you. You can move on. And we just let it float out. We can't rush it. It can hang around for a day, it can hang around, you know, for an hour. It can be there, but it's we don't have to process through things. I think for some reason in this like wellness space or kind of like get better quick type of sounds good in the internet, people think that we can just like one, two, three, move out of something. Like just, just push, just go, just do it. And mental illness often says no, but also we can't force an emotion to move quickly. Unfortunately, we have to, make space for it, acknowledge it, identify it, maybe figure out where it's coming from and what is happening and like what stirred this in us. And then when our body feels like we have acknowledged it and expressed it, it will move it along. And I think in that stuffing down and that numbing out, we're feeling this out of control and mood swing thing happening because then instead of like acknowledging one emotion at a time, we're going through maybe like five or six that we haven't let ourselves feel for God knows how long. Does this make sense? I hope I'm not getting too all over the place. But anyways, I think that that's why we're self-harming. That's why we're using our eating disorder. Things feel out of control. Um, Probably there's some trauma in there somewhere. And that feeling of needing control is just because a lot of things in our life that were out of our control, like swirled around us and caused chaos and hurtful things. And so, yeah, all of that. Then you said you also have an eating disorder and you exercise a lot so you don't hurt yourself. Okay, I applaud your eating disorder for being another coping skill, but we're going to need to give get some coping skills in there that are not eating disorder or self-injury related. I have a video, 25 coping skills. Look it up. Let's come up with those. Um, and so says I'm having this meltdown crisis, seems like I'll never get tired. When you get back to quote unquote normal, when you come out of crisis, you're your adrenal gland, your body is fucking zapped. All the energy, think of all the energy in your system, emotional energy, physical energy that goes into a mental or a meltdown or a crisis. That's why you feel exhausted and you really should let yourself rest. And your heart probably is weak because you might not be feeding it enough and you're exercising it too much. So your potassium levels could be low. I'm not a doctor, but I've worked with eating disorder patients forever and ever. And you you should probably get some blood work done and go see the doctor. So those are my opinions on that. We need to get you some other coping skills in place. I think it's the stuffing down and the numbing out that is causing these meltdowns because we can't stuff it. It's going to come out whether we want to or not. And if, if we keep stuffing, it'll keep coming out in situations and times when places where we don't want it to. So hang in there, reach out, get some support. If you're not seeing a therapist already, please, please, please see a therapist and let's get you back to feeling like you. Okay. Let's move on to question number two. And this question says, Hi, Katie, I have a history of childhood trauma. And at the moment, I feel really torn between feeling angry toward my parents and feeling like I have no right to be angry with them because I'm aware that they don't, they didn't intentionally hurt me. Interesting. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. but when the anger isn't there, it just feels so shitty that I went through what I did and there's no one to blame for it, i.e. the world is just fucked up. I feel like I need the anger to motivate me to put boundaries between me and my family, but a lot of the time I question what I'm even trying to protect myself from. The trauma was in some ways very subtle, so it's difficult to identify and validate. Just hoping you can make some sense of all this confusion. Thank you, of course. Now, okay, It's very common, especially with trauma bonds, which I would argue if if the abuser was our parent, but honestly anybody, but really if it's our parent, I think there's already that bond formed. And when trauma and abuse is part of it, a trauma bond isn't far behind. Now, if you're wondering what a trauma bond is, it really occurs when we connect or bond, actually I have a whole video about it if you want. Um, And there's a, a book I read some uh I'll I'll figure it out in a second and I'll tell you. Um but anyways, the the trauma bond is how we bond with our abusers in hopes really that if we connect and love them and they love us back then they won't hurt us again. So it's almost kind of like Stockholm syndrome that trauma bond and it's done as a way for us to kind of feel less victimized and more in control and also connected to someone. Okay. And we're so desperately looking for connection always that unfortunately our abuser, we can want to connect to them too. And a lot of times when the abuse happens, we can go through the cycle of abuse where something happens and they're like, I would never do that again. I'm so sorry. Blah, blah, blah. I love you so much. And we want to believe them because we love them too. And so we can get caught up in it. Right. And so when they say like, I'm so sorry, we're like, don't worry. I love you too. And we're like, we're bonded. We're connected. Okay. Now, um that's what a trauma bond is. That's what I have a feeling is kind of happening here. But that anger towards them and, and then feeling like they didn't intentionally hurt you, what's happening right here is what I would call like the shame, blame, guilt, and embarrassment cycle of trauma. And hear me out. Um, when we feel shame, we think something's wrong with us. That's when we say things to ourselves like, well, you know, I didn't say no to my sexual abuser when i was a kid you know because you're a kid and you didn't understand right but i didn't say no so therefore you know i think it was consensual i think i brought it on myself and i kept going back um they were your babysitter and they're supposed to take care of you and you know but we don't have that other voice right we forget what it was like to be us at that age we look back as adult us and we're like why the fuck didn't you say something why did you keep doing that and we shame and we blame something must be wrong with you if you would do that we Feel embarrassed. Don't tell anybody because they're going to know that you went back and then they're going to be like, Why'd you go back again? Right? Oh, it's so complicated, it's so painful, and it's so misplaced. Okay. This person is not only shaming, blaming, feeling guilty and embarrassed, but also minimizing and invalidating. Because they didn't intentionally hurt me. The hurt still happened. That'd be like saying that if someone hit me when I was walking through a crosswalk, but they didn't mean to, that then I don't have a right to be upset that they hit me in the crosswalk. I know that that sounds very dramatic. And you're like, Katie, that's not the same. It's the same. We can't have someone harm us and be like, well, they didn't intentionally do it. A lot of harm is unintentional, a lot of abuse is because our parents were abused themselves they are not responsible for the abuse that they sustained, but they are. And I want you to hear this. They are responsible for the actions they take with their own children and people in their own life. We're all responsible for our actions. Period. I know. It's sometimes hard to hear, but it's a hard truth. We're responsible. They're responsible. You haven't done anything. You were harmed by them. They are responsible, intentional or not. Okay. Okay. So throwing that out there. So of course you feel angry. They hurt you. Anger is protective. It's telling you that you feel vulnerable, or maybe um, you know, like something bad could happen when you're around them, or even just thinking about them. Of course you're angry. They like stole some stuff from you through abuse. It could have be. It could be stealing your innocence. You're stealing your childhood. Stealing your ability to be like a reckless kid for a little bit and learn boundaries in a healthy way. Could have been all those things. Could have been more things. It's okay to be angry. Okay. So and that's why when the anger isn't there, it just feels shitty because you're left with all you're left with is the, the sadness, the admission of abuse. And that can be really, really hard. And so what I encourage you to do, if you feel able, is to journal a little bit about that anger. Let's start with the anger, because even though you kind of feel bad or you feel like I don't mean right to feel angry, it's important. I want you to get to know your anger this sounds really silly, but I had to do this personally because I don't really like anger. Anger feels very out of control and very scary. So I would like stuff it deep and then like rage randomly. Um, not helpful, right? Not good for my relationship. Not good for myself. Um, so my therapist had me try to get to know her, give your anger a name, put her outside of you and talk about it. What is, what does he or she look like? What do they act like? Um, is it a person? Is it an object? Is it like fire? Mine was fire. Fire feels very crazy. It could jump around, right? Set the whole house on fire. It could be like ah. Um, let's get to know it. When does it come up? How long does it last? What does it tell you? Do that, and then consider what you feel when the anger's gone. That kind of shitty feeling, like there's no one to blame. World just fucked up. Like, tell me about that. What's that feel like? Okay, and we have to dig into this because we can't try to get rid of any of these things they are all valid, but they will lessen if we seek to understand them. Again, it's kind of going back to the last question where the more we try to stuff it down, the stronger it gets. And so I encourage you to just to, if you can, and obviously if you have a therapist, please do this with them, it'll be so much better. But if we're able, we need to tap in. We need to think about how that really makes us feel. What's our experience like? What's it feel like if I close my eyes and feel in my body, what does anger feel like? If I collage it, what's it look like? If I danced it, what? You can use any medium to kind of get it out. I just offered up writing and journaling because that works for some people. And I find it really helpful just to at least get it out of your head. Okay. Now you said you feel like you need the anger to motivate you. You do need boundaries. Everybody needs them. I don't know why people think boundaries are in some ways like rude or disrespectful. No. Boundaries are, if you do X that I find hurtful, I'm going to do why, which is like leave or whatever, right? Boundaries are not requests. We can't just say to someone, you know, I don't want you talking to me that way anymore. That's a request. And that could be part of placing a boundary. But the boundary is really when we say, I don't really like you talking to me that way anymore. And if you continue to, I'm not going to be able to see you as often. That part is the boundary, okay? And you're going to need those with your family um, because that you were traumatized by them, subtle or not, it happened. And as you come around to kind of validate your own experience, fight back against that minimization, get to know the anger and where it's coming from, you know, those boundaries will allow you to decide whether you have a relationship with them, what it looks like, how to position yourself where you feel okay engaging with them in a way that you want. Okay. And the reason I'm saying that so vaguely is because I don't want you to feel like you have to continue having a relationship with them. And I also don't want you to feel like you can't have a relationship with them. It's up to you. It's up to how much you can handle and how, how uh, I don't know if it's good is the right word, but how safe or secure you feel your boundaries are. Does that make sense? I hope so. Um, Yeah. But of course you feel anger. It's protective. They hurt you. I would feel angry too. Now, there was a comment that says, as an add-on, I have a history of childhood sexual abuse, starting from my mom and going down through my siblings. I'm the youngest of five and the only girl. As an adult, I struggle with what is just a normal mother-daughter relationship versus what crosses the lines as inappropriate. Same with my siblings. What's a normal curious behavior and what crossed the line into being wrong? I feel like the light has been turned on to some of the things in therapy and that hurt is deep. How can you blame such hurt on someone who was hurt as a child too? Again, we, ki- we aren't responsible for what happened to us, but we're responsible for our own actions. I know it's hard. It's hard to untangle sometimes, right? My mom was molest- molested for years by her dad. Did she just not learn normal? It's possible and probably never process what she went through. And does one learn normal when raised in such an abnormal way? And this seems to bleed over into many other areas in my life. Of course it does. Because you the place is supposed to be safe, that was supposed to allow you to grow and develop and, and get an idea of who you are and you're independent, all that was taken from you. You were never allowed. You were never given that opportunity. Your mom and your siblings robbed you of your own privacy, of your own boundaries, of your own, not just your own body, but your own sense of self and ability to protect that. They... You know, shame on them. Now, um, how does one learn normal? Through therapy, through being honest about what happened and processing it. And yes, I know it's terrifying to think of going into a therapist and sharing such embarrassing things, right? We can feel so embarrassed, so shamed, so broken, like we're just too much, right? But that's where the healing comes from, is from sharing as much as we can as we can. to let someone help us tease out what we went through and understand what boundaries are. Uh, how can we heal that inner child? How can we talk to her in a way that she can hear and that we love her and you know, she feels loved? How can we do all of that? It's gonna take some time. It's gonna take some unpacking and some inner child work as well as, you know, trauma processing, which could be talk therapy, could be EMDR and some somatic stuff, any of those things, okay? Um, take your time with it. You can undo that damage so that you live a life not riddled with trauma symptoms, okay? Now, your mom not learning normal, it's possible. She never talked about it, never processed it, never did anything. That Again, that doesn't condone her behavior. Just because we had shitty past doesn't give us carte blanche to go out into the world and like fuck other people up. No, 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 no. Again, we're not responsible for what other people do to us, but we're responsible for what we do to others. And we can't keep blaming what we're doing on our past or even on our mental illness, right? We can have our struggles, but we can't say, oh, you know, you can't get mad at me because, you know, I have depression. No, or up, you know, it's just my borderline acting up. No, we're responsible. We get to make choices. I know sometimes with mental illness, it doesn't feel like we have choices, but that's why we need therapy and medication to get us to a point where we feel like we have a little space to make a choice. I know it sucks. I know it's hard but we have to remember that. I know it's a, it's a, it's a tough truth. Okay. Now what's normal or what's, what's normal mother, daughter stuff and what crosses the line is appropriate. A lot of it has to do with the power dynamic. Now, because it's your mom, someone older, they have all the power in the relationship. That's already very off kilter. Um, A mom, like, you know, washing you, taking care of you, doing things like putting diapers on you and cleaning you. Those are all basic, very normal things. When things start to uh, be sexualized, like a sexual type of behavior, that's not appropriate. When you get to an age where you don't want your mom to bathe you anymore and she insists on it and you feel very violated as it's happening, those are all signs and symptoms of you from your body and your brain telling you that what's happening isn't okay with you. And when you felt that way, that's when it crossed that line. Anything sexual between a mother and a child is not appropriate, but basic cleaning, tending to that kind of stuff, especially around like diapers and teaching you how to bathe yourself, all of that is like very healthy, what I'd call like normal, quote unquote, normal behavior. Um, And from your siblings, you know, there's natural curiosity between kids. I don't want anybody to feel shamed for like, I show you yours, you show me mine. What is that? How does that work? Kind of stuff. That's kids being naturally curious. Um, But again, the power dynamic is important if a kid is older or has more resources or even just their understanding of sex because they were molested. That gives them more power over the child who doesn't understand sex. Those things are all important to take into consideration. Um, but when you feel violated, you don't want something to happen. You feel like you can't say no. You go into freeze response. Those are all, again, indicators from your brain and body that what's happening to you is not okay. And we, you know, that is not healthy and not good for you and traumatizing. Okay. Um, I hope that I answered all your questions. Let me know. And please get help. Please get some support so we can start processing through because that you know, oh, has been turned uh, on to some things in therapy. So good. Yeah. Keep talking it out. It can and will get better. Okay. Final add-on says, my mom has BPD and a lot of trauma, but my sister for the past year has been convinced that she has undiagnosed autism. It's very, po- very possible. I know there's overlap between the two, but it makes me angry that my sister says this because it feels like it's reducing her responsibility for what she did to us. Again, it doesn't. You're still responsible for what you do. Whether she has autism or not, how can we both how can we hold both truths that she hurt us and they are there are external things that push her to do so? How can we feel valid if she di- didn't mean to do it? Again, we are all responsible for our actions. She can have her own struggles and that can help explain it, but that doesn't make it okay. And that doesn't mean that we can't still feel mad at her upset about what happened i know some of you're like well you can't blame her she has yes i can i can hold her responsible for her actions and behaviors and make sure she has support and help so that she can not do that anymore a mental illness again it gives an, it's an explanation not a carte blanche to do whatever we want i know that that can be hard but it's the truth And so I think part of it is supporting her, getting that diagnosis, getting the support that she feels, but also telling her, you know, the things that you did were really hurtful and I feel very pained by them. And if you keep treating me that way, I won't be able to have this kind of relationship with you or whatever, right? That's just an example of a boundary that could be set because autism or not, if she's going to be abusive, you don't have to be around her all the time, right? If at all and that, those are things that we can choose to do if someone isn't getting help or isn't getting better or it's dangerous for us to be there those are all things to consider so that you can make a choice that's the best for you and your safety again the best thing we can do for anyone who's struggling is support their decision to get more help and you know seek to understand what it feels like for them to have that mental illness or that when it comes to autism you know um to to have our brain work that way what's that like you know we can ask them we can seek to understand but then also still hold them accountable for the behaviors that they or the the harmful things they did right now there were some comments on this that didn't really relate to the original question so if you find yourself not getting some of your add-on questions added just ask your question separately because if it doesn't relate um i won't add it in since it doesn't build on what we're already talking about okay let's move on to question number three This question says, Katie, would it be normal or acceptable to ask my therapist if I can just check in with her every now and then, like maybe every three months or so? Do people do that? They do. I'll talk about it. I don't have a big need to see her right now, but it would be nice if I could just check in with her sometimes. I like the support and the place to share and to get an unbiased perspective on whatever's going on with me. Plus, I miss her a lot. Hmm. I saw her for almost two years. She knows so much history from my life, and it just seems to me like she's kind of irreplaceable just curious if people do this occasional check-in type of appointment or not or if i just have to try and get over it and move on since i don't really need therapy anymore also i'm already going to see her next month because i want to discuss whether or not i should go off my antidepressant this is not a topic i feel like i can discuss with anyone else and i haven't seen her since february okay um yes, there's two parts to this. Yes, people do those check-ins. I've had many patients be gone for a couple of years and then they come back for a check-in here and there. Um, We could do, I haven't had anybody do like a every couple of month thing, but we could have a scheduled thing. It's usually like they just call me when they want to come in and then we schedule like a couple of appointments and then we're like, okay, and then they feel better and we stop. Or they'll come in for like one or two and we're done. Um, But you could definitely do that and people do do that. I did that in my own therapy where I would just come in for little short periods and then go back out. I didn't so much go in for just like a check-in like one-time appointment, but I don't see anything wrong with that at all. Now, here's where I am suspicious in a nice way. The missing her and the fact that you said, I don't really need therapy anymore. So the reasons that we do these check-ins and the reasons that I would call my therapist or my patients would call me and we would get back together to see each other is because things were a little off or we could feel ourselves slipping. I do eating disorder work a lot in my own practice. Patients would come back because like, hey, I'm having a little tough time with some snacks. And so I figured it's probably a good time to get things in check, right? Or with my therapist, I'd be like, I've been crying more lately watching television. (laughs) I think I'm overwhelmed, right? Um, So we should be going back because we need the support, not because we miss our therapist. And so I think there's some attachment stuff that I would want to untangle there a little bit. Um, I'm glad you're talking to her before you try to go off your antidepressant. I would also, you know, talk to your doctor. But I don't know if you need to see her if you don't really need the therapy. But if you've already processed that attachment stuff and you feel like you understand it and where it comes from, and this just feels like a kind of a nice uh, self-soothing thing, I don't think it's the worst thing, but I am curious about it when it comes to like where it's coming from and what the issue is, because I would, I'm would, i wondering if this pops up in other parts of your life. That's really why. Because therapy, we can think, oh, so much gets like drug out in therapy and like I, would, things are so weird with your therapist and like why do we feel this way and blah, 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 blah. The truth is, is that therapy is like a concentrated representation of our life. So the things that are happening in therapy are happening maybe with more intensity than they're happening in our life or the same level, but they're just showing us like with a microscope, like what's going on in our life. So I'm curious about your attachment and how you feel with other maybe women or people in your life that have been helpful or teachers, coaches, things like that. Um, do you feel really connected and do you miss them? And is that hard for you to let that go? Just just curious, but overall, not. I don't see a big problem with that. Okay. There was a comment on this that so I can relate to this as well. As an add on, I think I'm attached to my therapist. Here we go. And this isn't the first time something like this has happened either. And that's why I'm getting really concerned as to why I am so freaking messed up. For context, I do have child sexual abuse in my history and a narcissistic mother for added spice. <laughs> that could be where this is coming from. Um, Ever since I was in fifth grade, I've had some form of attachment to an adult figure, of course, because your mom wasn't there emotionally at all. She was out to get what made her happy. She had no empathy for your experience and you were sexually abused. So you felt like no one was there to care for you. You had this big hole in your psyche, in your heart for a mom and for support and love and no one filled it. And So you go out into the world looking for someone to fill it um, okay. In grade five says that year it was my teacher. And she said that figure, um, and she was that figure the following year too. When I got into high school as my English teacher, and she was, and still is a major support figure in my life. And she was the first person who truly understood me. Um, she was the person I first told about ongoing abuse that I was sustaining from my uncle. And she was my person all throughout that time, all throughout my time in high school until she left early last year. I felt stranded. Later that year, I was referred to the school psychologist, and she then filled the void I had. I only saw her five or six times, but I planned to see her outside of my school until I was told I couldn't due to education guidelines. I had a full mental breakdown and went spiraling after that. I had a lot going on at the time as well, and my abuser was no longer in my life. Oh, who was no longer in my life? Approached me and spoke to me for the first time in two years. What a fucking prick. To be truthful, I still haven't gotten over it. Of course not. How scary. The school psych referred me to one of those clo- her close colleagues, whom I've been seeing since late January, and she is amazing. I do fin- find it really hard to trust people and open up. I'm a shit client, to say the least. One p- big problem, though, is I feel dependent. I constantly feel the urge to email her about all the craziness in my unpredictable life as she is the only person I can talk to, but I don't end up doing it as I'm scared of seeming needy and a pain. I imagine future sessions and conversations that I need to have to try to ease my anxiety, but I don't mention half of the things from my scenarios. I really want to open up to her about the full extent of my abuse, but I'm terrified that if I do this attachment, I do this attachment to her will get worse and I don't want it to. I constantly freak out after sessions and overanalyze every detail, scared of offending or hurting her. I sound weird, insane, even. Why the hell am I so messed up? How much of this is possibly caused by my abuse? I'd say a majority of it. Why do I always need an adult figure to depend on? Because you never had one. It's a basic need. Nothing's wrong with you. We'll talk about this. And I guess a big question I have is how greatly does my mom's narcissistic tendencies influence this, if at all? Please help me. Any additional insight or advice would be greatly appreciated. And sorry for the lengthy add-on. I hope it makes sense and I didn't stray too far from the original question. Thanks for all you do, Katie. You truly changed lives. Oh, of course. And I think this was in line with the original question. Overall, The abuse and your mom being a narcissist means, and also narcissistic abuse is a big thing. Emotional neglect is a big thing. Feeling manipulated and love bombed and like you don't know what to trust if you can trust yourself. It's very abusive. So the sexual abuse and your mother, the narcissistic abuse... Way heavy on you. And my encouragement would be to do some inner child work. Now I have the workshop on my website. You can go to katymorton.com and look for it there. Um, if that's just out of your budget or you don't want to do something like that, there are tons of books that you can purchase. I actually have them in my Amazon shop to make them easy to find. Just go to uh, amazon.com forward slash shop forward slash katie Morton and they're all in there. I think I get like 3% if you buy something through my shop. So thank you very much. Um, I make like, a, like $5 a month. <laughs> but it just makes it easier. They're all pulled together, all the things that I like and use and talk about, especially when it comes to like workbooks and stuff like that. So that those are all the things um that I think would help you get out of this feeling of having this void and like you want to find someone else to fill it. And I know it sucks, and everybody out there hates this, but when we do the inner child work, it's not it's not just us getting in contact with our inner child. It's be being able to have him or her feel heard and seen and understood, and that's fucking so powerful, and be able to acknowledge what it is that we had needed that we didn't get. And then adult us can offer it to child us. That's what I mean when I say like we can offer it to ourselves, which I know sucks and people hate that. But that's what I mean. Adult us can offer child us a a ear. We can listen. For the first time, that child of us, that was abused and misunderstood can feel heard, cared for. We can repair some things by taking ourselves out to do the things that maybe our mom always said she would do and she's never showed up for us. Maybe we finally buy ourselves those flashy shoes that we always wanted. You know, there's lots of little things that adult us can do for child us. And I would encourage you to get in touch with him or her. um, And that will help you heal. Okay. And again, I know it's a shitty answer, but trust me, it does get better. Okay. We can make it so we don't keep trying to push people into that hole. Okay. Okay. Question number four says, my question is also regarding how trauma, in particular childhood trauma, manifests in our bodies. Great question. I'm excited about this. I have a condition called interstitial cystic painful bladder syndrome and pelvic floor disorder. After years and years and thousands of dollars seeking medical attention, I came to learn that it's more likely caused by the trauma that I went through as a child and teenager. So I guess I don't really have a question, but more like wanting to hear you speak on the topic of how trauma manifests physical symptoms. Thanks for all that you do, of course. Now, okay, I'm going to read the add on here. And then we're going to dig into this because it's, it's connected. Says this question made me reflect on my own life. I have incontinence since childhood. And I wonder if I experienced more trauma because of incontinence or did trauma lead to the incontinence? is it just a cycle of each affecting the other more? Not sure if Katie can answer this, but I would love to know. Also because of shame, I haven't even opened up to my therapist about this physical issue. I just find ways to manage it. Okay. So, so much to unpack here. And my first request from all of you is to read about the ACEs study, A-C-E-S. Now the ACEs study isn't perfect. I don't want anybody to think it by any means covers all potential traumas. What the ACEs study, now ACEs stands for Adverse Childhood Experiences, but what the ACEs study sought to find out is does having trauma in our childhood, so 18 years or younger, lead to health issues later? And and that's why it's not an exhaustive list of traumas. A lot of people get upset about the ACEs study because they're like, oh, it doesn't mention this, and I was traumatized by that or whatever yes I hear you I agree with you almost everybody in the field agrees with you okay I don't think I've seen anybody who thinks it's like exhaustive you at all but it does show us that in fact sadly trauma affects our bodies in so many ways a member of our community is reading Eckhart Tolle's new book um I'm forgetting what it's called but I'll, I'll come on, I'll find it here um Okay, new book. It's the newest, newer book. Um, and it is called uh, The Magic in Your Mind, I think, is which one it is. But anyways, um, yeah, I think that's the one, but I could be wrong. But either Eckhart Tolle, she, anyway, remember member of our community was reading that book and was essentially he was recounting what I'm telling you now, that trauma does affect our physical health. And the most common ways are, I'm just going to start rattling some stuff off. And this is not meant to scare you. This is just meant for you to maybe feel heard and understood for the first time. Trauma in childhood can affect us in adulthood in high blood pressure, diabetes, heart disease, uh, inflammatory diseases, immune issues like lupus, uh, all those digestive stuff like IBS and things like that, Um, whether it's colitis or Crohn's, we're higher, the likelihood and substance abuse is higher. I mean, all sorts of issues can come out of us being traumatized, frankly, because it affects our body in so many ways. Because if we think of trauma, think of like our nervous system being on edge, thinking it's uh, it's under threat, right? We're in fight, flight, freeze, fawn, like, potentially forever. It can be really taxing on our system. Think of like high, high blood pressure, you know, all of those things. Um, high, high cholesterol, even I believe was part of it too. And I could explain each, honestly, each of the ailments that we could have a higher likelihood of having through the mental health ramifications. And if we think about it, we can all kind of make sense of it. Like for example, and I'm not going to go into each of them because it'd be exhaust, it'd be just take forever. That's like, three podcasts in one. But like, let's say um, high blood pressure, high cholesterol. When we struggle with trauma, um, binge eating is often associated with it as a way to cope with what we feel, right? So that could lead to that. Also think of, again, our nervous system being on edge, us being disconnected from our bodies because it doesn't feel safe. We might not even know when we're hungry or full, right? So you can see, not that we're reasoning it out, but like you can kind of understand why there's this correlation and that's just from what I understand on the mental health therapeutic space that doesn't even go into like the cellular level of like what does it do to our bodies and our nervous system when we are on high alert for long periods of time right like adrenal fatigue things like that so anyway yes your interstitial cystic painful bladder syndrome and pelvic floor disorder could be caused by trauma. Now, if we had a, a trauma that was also very painful to our body, like let's say we were physically abused, that can lead to all sorts of different things, right? We can have like bones that didn't heal back together properly. We can have painful uh, sprains, strains, all sorts of things. We can have a damage internally if there was any, you know, like vaginal tearing or fissures in our, um, you know in our anal area, all sorts of things that could happen to us as a result of trauma. I know this might be really triggering for people. I apologize. But all of this could come from trauma. But the good news is, and I want to at least lighten this a little bit, is that we can, I believe, stop it from getting worse. Now, in some cases, we can undo it, right? Like our high blood pressure can come down. Our diabetes can be managed and controlled and we can be okay. Um, You know, there's all sorts of ways I think that we can better deal. And I think if the trauma is processed, we're not in that fight flight, that hypervigilant state, whatever is causing all of these ailments, I think it can get better. At the very least, it won't get any worse. And so I think the processing of our trauma is going to be really, really key. If have even had patients have, um, is it vaginismus? vaginitis. I think it's vagin. Anyway, it's like where we can't relax the muscles in our vagina. It makes sex really painful and unenjoyable. And through trauma work, able to relax. Um, so anyways, the other person talked about incontinence. Now incontinence is incredibly, incredibly common when it comes to trauma. Um, I don't know the full exhaustive list of like how it would affect us. But I do know that especially for children. Now, again, I don't know if the research has expanded into adults, but I don't see why it would be any different. In children who have already been potty trained, who go through tough adjustments in life, like let's say they moved or I don't know, a parent passed away or something, that's a trauma, right? Big T, little D, doesn't matter. It's a trauma. Um, they can start wetting the bed or pooping their pants, uh, peeing their pants in school. They can go backwards and that incontinence or that inability to control their bowels or their, um, you know, their urine, it becomes very common. And so as a therapist, we're looked like if bladder control issues come back, it's like a red flag for a therapist. We're supposed to, you know, assess then for some sexual abuse or changes to the child's home life. It, something's happened. A trauma has happened is what we're suspecting and we have to kind of do... Uh, Our due diligence to make sure that they're okay. And so, with the person who asked about that, I think that, again, I don't see any reason why this couldn't continue to affect us. I would assume that if you're able to talk to your therapist about the abuse more, it might get worse at first and then hopefully it will get better. Um, But I would I would encourage you to open up to your therapist and also tell your doctor. I'd want to make sure there isn't another organic cause for what's happening. But overall, the ACEs study is where it's at to read about that. Again, the, this list is not exhaustive when it comes to traumas, but it helps us see how they could affect us. Okay. Let's go on to question number five. This question says, hello, Katie. I hope you're doing okay. I'm doing great. I hope you're doing okay. It says, I want to know why is it so difficult to ask for help? Because we minimize, we invalidate, we per- we can be embarrassed, right? I am so overwhelmed with things to do, but I won't ask for help. How do I get the courage to ask for help when I am probably going to be told that they can't help? Help. Okay. It's hard because at, for number one, like I said, we um, minimize, we invalidate. We can think like, oh, I can do it myself. And then there's the embarrassment factor. There's the shame and the guilt. And then there's this third piece that I don't think we talk about enough. And that's kind of like the they don't, aren't going to understand peace or we're like, oh, but I'm feeling like shit. I don't have like the energy or the time or the capabilities to like explain what's going on. And so my encouragement for all of you is when you don't feel like shit to explain to your close friends or family or whoever you would reach out to for support, explain to them how they can help you and how, how you'll reach out. Like I remember I did a video, I'm forgetting who it was with. Anyway, I did a collaboration years ago with another YouTuber. And they were sharing how with their friends, they have like a code word or code colors and emojis they send to let them know how they're doing. And, you know, there's like two or three friends that they would reach out to. And they know if, you know, let's say we send like the red stop sign to like come over immediately. It's like an emergency or like a purple heart means X, Y, or, you know, it's almost like a stop and go system, like the stoplight. So like red, orange, and yellow, or sorry, red, orange, and yellow. (laughs) It's red yellow and green. Um but anyways, you know, you can come up with your own signs, your own ways and to do it when you're not in crisis is going to be best because that will, you know, ensure it's already in place and you can just do it and you don't have to think about it. Now, that's a that's a big piece. The second piece that I want you to take some time kind of thinking about is how you talk to yourself about your struggles and reaching out for help. It might be helpful to like journal about this a little bit, whether we type it, write it, think about it, get it out a little bit. I want you to take some time to be curious about this because I have a feeling there's a conversation that you're having where you're like, uh, if I ask them, if I reach out, they're just going to, well, we like make assumptions. We could shit talk ourselves. I want you, I want to know what that conversation is like. And if you're able, I want you to try to work It into a more neutral place using bridge statements these don't have to be positive but I want you to shift it out of that negative space that's holding you frozen and keeping you from reaching out okay now there was a comment on this as this is also something that I struggle with however I've slowly started to reach out to others because I know the importance of building a good support system yay it says but now my problem is that when they ask what they can do to help me all I want to do is shut down and run away even more so when they decide to help anyways, I have so much trouble accepting the help that they're offering. Why do I do this to myself? Again, that minimization, that invalidation, I would encourage you to, again, when you're not in crisis, to come up with some ways that people could help you because there's usually patterns to our kind of crises, right? There's certain things that people can do to support like, hey, just show up and just sit with me. That's helpful or help me make dinner or you know, help around the house. I don't know. Maybe it just means you want them to call and just be on the phone with you. Maybe, maybe we want to just chitty chat and through text, figure out what that is, come up with some options and let them know when you're not in crisis, okay? And then the trouble with accepting the help that you're offering goes into that conversation you have with yourself. There's something that's happening that's holding you frozen. So I want you to be curious about that. What are you telling yourself? What would it mean? How come, how come this roadblock, right? We can't get rid of it if we don't understand it. So what does it, is it protective? Do we feel embarrassed? Tell me all about it. Okay. Now the final person said, I feel the same thing. My question is, I'm 26 and I know my inner child needs to be soothed via a long hug or just to rest my head on someone's lap. I feel that. I wasn't able to fully relax as a child. How do I ask one of my close friends without it being weird? Or can I comfort myself? Thoughts? Weighted blankets are great for comforting yourself, but I really do think that um, just telling your friends sometimes you need a big hug any friend would say, yeah, of course. I mean, I also am a hugger and I grew up with a f- in a family of huggers. So if you were to tell me you need a hug, I'd be like, anytime, I got you. So let them know, hey, I I need a hug. I think that's perfectly okay to ask for. But again, those weighted blankets can come in when you, you know, you aren't around someone or the people you are aren't your people where you can ask for that. Okay. Let's move on to question number six. And it says, hi, Katie, I'm wondering what to do about my intense fear of failure and the need to be perfect. For context, I have a lot of trauma. I was just going to ask and was emotionally abused and neglected in childhood. Because of this, I have anxious attachment. If you guys don't know, I'm going to get into attachment because that'll probably be my next workshop. But I'll have some videos about this. Anxious attachment is essentially where we want people to be really close and connected, but it feels too scary or too risky to let them get close. And so we do this kind of like, oh, I want it. And then we push them away and like, you know, we get too anxious. It's too much. So we do this like push, pull, push, pull kind of thing. Okay. Because of this, I have anxious attachment, OCD, and I spent some time in a mental hospital when I was in college. I also have a history of disordered eating, self-harm, generalized anxiety disorder, and ADHD. I'm now 23 and I'm mostly healthy and finally have a strong identity. Yay. The only issue is that I'm desperately trying to be perfect in everything I do. We'll talk about this. It's almost like I'm always performing because I'm trying to avoid making people think that I'm flawed or not the best at what I'm doing. Because of this, I also have a lot of social anxiety and anxiety in the workplace. It's very problematic as I'm about to start my master's in social work because I want to do trauma care with the kiddos. I love that. I want to be a social worker, but I have so much anxiety surrounding social judgment. My therapist suggested EMDR. What do you think? Can I ever stop feeling like I'm always performing and just exist as I am? Side note, I have been with a sage therapist for six years, but paused our sessions because of my work schedule. Okay. Now, perfectionism, I read something in the artist's way that I'm going to share with you because it was incredibly powerful for me. And essentially... What she said is that perfectionism is not us seeking out the best in ourselves it's about putting a spotlight on the worst and that is very 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 true and it is a hard fact for me even to admit Um, but let's dig into this a little bit perfectionism comes out of our lack of control in childhood Um, It can come out of us feeling like if we just did everything right, our parents would finally give us attention, or if I just everything right, the parent wouldn't use drugs or alcohol again or abuse us again, right? That comes out of us just trying to be as perfect as possible, meaning we have a very acute awareness of anything that's not good about us, and we're probably an extreme people pleaser, okay? Now, I say all of that because you talked about how, I'm going to scroll back up here, how you are um, you feel like you're always performing and you don't want people to think that you're flawed or not the best at what you're doing. And my suspicion is that you have really, really shitty self-talk. I know I harp on this all the time, but I swear to God, the conversation that you have with yourself is the one you have with the universe. It's what we put out there when we go out into the world. And yours is really nasty and not helpful and very negative. And so you're worried that they're gonna see that. And so my my challenge is like two parts. Number one, I want you to pay attention to that self-talk and use some bridge statements to help move it in a more neutral place. Like I am open to the thought or belief that maybe I'm not as shitty as this at this as I think I am, right? I want you to, you know, do some of that. But then I also want you to tell me what perfectionism means to you. What's it look like? Why is it here? What purpose does it serve for you? Because like I said, there's so many reasons it can exist. Um, And then, I mean, part of my homework down the line, after we kind of figure out what perfectionism is, would be for you to potentially do some like exposures where you don't do something all the way. You like purposely misspell one word in an email. (gasps) I know. But doing small things like that can kind of help help us to see that it's not so black and white, all or nothing. The world's not gonna explode if we don't keep this these plates spinning and everything being perfect, right? Now your therapist suggesting EMDR I think is it has potential to help especially because of the emotionally abused and neglected in childhood and having a lot of trauma i think that your reaction to that has been this perfectionistic way this uh you know and and that's led into the anxiety you can see how it's all kind of connected and so i do think that that could be a way to help you be less reactive to the with the world and reactive with yourself um i would give it a try and hopefully some of those other things are helpful too okay and get you out of that performing but that is little at a time remember one little thing it's not all or nothing we're going to try small baby steps okay now comment on this says how do you deal with perfectionism or rigidity with emdr my need for perfectionism also often means I need a structured list of what to expect and what to do, which clearly makes EMDR challenging. When she says, notice that memory or thought, all I think of is what does she want me to notice? What if I do this wrong? I know she said there's no wrong way to do EMDR, but look, I can't even notice that thing. Where were where were we anyway? It's a useless spiral. My therapist is aware, but so far nothing has really improved. Hmm. This is interesting. And part of me feels like it's a block now. And I, I'm using the term block because there's all these things that can kind of jump into our way when we're trying to finally do work on ourselves. And you worrying about if you do it the wrong way, it, the, the, the talk therapist in me challenges you to journal. What would it mean if you did it wrong? Okay. It's like, we're going to do some CBT, some downward, we call it downward arrow questioning. Or yeah, I think it's down, downward error questioning it's called. Anyway, so, okay, what if you did do EMDR wrong? Then what? Okay, give me that answer. And then once you have that answer, if you're like, well, okay, if I did EMDR, then it's not going to help me and then I won't feel better. Okay, so if it doesn't help you and you won't feel better, well, then what do you do? And you're like, well, maybe I'd have to see another therapist or maybe we try a different type of therapy. Okay, then what? I want you to keep going down until you struggle to come up with an answer to that. And I want you to tell me where you got to, because usually these downward arrow questionings get us to a place where we have some sort of realization. For example, if that was the downward arrow, like, well, if I do this wrong, okay, then I'm gonna see that, and we keep going. It could be that my, like, as we get down and down and down, I think that I'm always gonna fail at everything, or that people aren't gonna love me, I'm not lovable, I'm not good enough, any of those things. And once we have whatever that fir- that firmly held false belief we've got about ourselves, once we know that, then we can bring that to our therapist and we can talk about that in EMDR because this is just a smokescreen. This like, am I doing this wrong? Oh my God. Uh, uh, that is just our brain and body like distracting us like, oh, squirrel from the real issue. It's saying, "Oh, this is too intense. Oh, I'm gonna do this wrong." It's just giving us an excuse to not focus because doing EMDR is challenging. Processing through trauma is fucking hard work. It's very scary, and it can feel very out of our control. So it triggers all these, whether you want to call it coping mechanisms or distraction techniques, or other people call it like schemas or parts of ourself. It's triggered that in you, and your this particular distraction or schema is called the perfectionist one. And so we have to understand it. Why is it there? What purpose does it serve? Where, what's the root of it? So do some of that. And I hope that that helps you kind of get out, like shake out of that block. Okay. Let's move on to question seven. This question is, hi, Katie, how's your day going? It's actually been pretty good. I've been finding random tip for all of you. I can uh, stress myself out for no goddamn reason meaning if I just feel like I have a lot to do, I'll like stress myself out all day. And I've been practicing this thing where I think, you know what, if it happens, it happens. If I have to do it tomorrow, I look at my schedule. I'm like, I can fit it in tomorrow. Or you know what, I can work later tonight. And it takes this edge off this pressure to get everything done fast, fast, fast. And then I can actually enjoy spending time with you answering these questions. And I don't feel rushed on to the next thing. So little tidbit, something I'm working on. Okay. I was just wondering how to cope with complex PTSD or CPTSD nightmares. I've been having them every single night. Seeing my triggers everywhere in my dreams and being confronted with my abusers face to face. It's an awful experience. I'm so sorry. And every time because you always feel an edge, extremely hypervigilant. Is there such a way to lessen the intensity of these nightmares? Yes, we'll talk about it. How can I find the strength to move forward after a traumatic night of intense flashbacks? What can I do in the daytime to help them? I'd love to hear your advice. Now, I have a couple podcasts with those. um, I'm forgetting his name. I'm such a turd. I forget. But anyway, he specializes in uh, sleep paralysis, which isn't what you're talking about. But he talks a lot about like sleep and nightmares and things that we can do. And overall, from what I remember and recall from those uh, podcasts and talking to even Dr. Ben Ryan, who talked about, um, you know, trauma in the brain, we can't do anything in the moment but if we wake up from a dream, we're supposed to like get up, shake out. Okay. You want to shake out that energy, all that hypervigilance on edge. The fact that you probably aren't feeling rested when you wake up, because essentially you haven't been resting. You've been like traumatized again. Shake that out. Maybe go splash some cold water in your face. Maybe turn on the lights, look around, give yourself a little break. Then we need to get back into bed. And I would encourage you to have the same kind of ritual around what you do when you wake from a nightmare like that. Like the body shake, the cold water. Maybe we drink a little water, we go pee or whatever, and back into bed, turn the light off. Okay. But whatever it looks like for you. Maybe we go stomp around our house to kind of shake it out that way. Whatever works. Um and then when we're laying in bed and we're like, you know, when you're, you have a nightmare and you're laying there and you're like, oh, it's going to pull me right back into another shitty nightmare Ugh, and we don't want it to. That's where we can get a little creative. Um, we can either. There's a bunch of options. We can uh, tell ourselves, go back through one of your favorite little cute memories. And I want you to tell me everything about that memory. As you lay in bed, I want you to think, what was I wearing? Where was I? Who was with me? What do I remember smelling? did I touch anything? Like, um, my brain just went to when Sean and I were in Paris, We went to this one bar and all the bathrooms in Paris, for some reason, like downstairs and along this wall going down to the bathroom was like this, uh, it was like this velvet wallpaper. And I was like, Oh, I really want to touch it. And since I'm kind of, I didn't, I'm sure a lot of people touched it. I like reached way up (laughs) and touched along and I can still feel it. Right. Tell me about that. I want you to get into the details of it. What did you taste? What did you see in this wonderful, beautiful memory of yours? Now, if you don't have a memory, if you're like, life was kind of traumatic, blocks a lot of it out, do not fret. Then I want you to create your perfect day or your perfect vacation or tell me about your perfect home. Tell me about something that you're very excited, your ideal scenario. Again, what would you be wearing who would you see? And I know you're like, this is going to take forever. Like start with like, what time do you get up? I, I slept. I felt so rested. I woke up at 1130. I really slept in. And then um, my friend called and she was like, I'm going to stop by and pick you up. Let's go get breakfast. It was so nice, right? Tell me in all the detail because as we go through this, we're going to slowly fall asleep. That's the goal, right? It's like counting sheep, but instead we're uh, talking about positive memories, ideal days, And that will put us in a more positive space. Now, is it like foolproof? No, but we can try. And it gives us a a potential for a better outcome. Now, during the day and in the daytime before you go to bed, rituals are going to be really key again. Also know that as you work through your complex PTSD, the nightmares might get worse at the beginning, but then they'll get better. So just hang with us. Okay. Um, but in the daytime, have a ritual around bed and do that same thing, right? So we get ready. That means a ritual just means like, okay, I watch TV. I turn it off at 1030 sharp. Pow. Then I go and I brush my teeth. I wash my face. I take my dog out to go potty. I change into my pajamas. And then I, um, I watch a little TikTok and I go to bed or whatever it is, right? I have that ritual but I would encourage you to do that body shake again and to do that visualization of a good memory or an ideal day or something, because again, we want to get ourselves ready for bed and we want to guide our brain in a happier place. Again, it's not foolproof, but it can be really helpful. And also, um, I learned through talking to Dr. Ben Ryan and the other, um, Psychologist, and I'm sorry, I'm forgetting his name. But anyways, they both said, do not take melatonin. It is not good for you. It doesn't make your dreams any better. It can actually make them a little more weird. Um, it's a hormone. Don't do it. And so instead, I think they recommended things like magnesium and Apigen. Um, I'm not a doctor. Talk to your doctor before you start any supplements. But those types of things can be more calming to your system. There's like, magne- I used to take magnesium tea before bed. I think it was just like sleepy time tea. Um, and that was really helpful too. So look into those things, talk to your doctor, but that could be beneficial as well. Okay, our final question, question number eight, says, Hey Katie, and happy Thursday, happy Thursday says I have a question about trauma and disgust. And I'm really scared that I might be the only one feeling like that. I recently talked to my best friend about feeling turned on by movie scenes, etc. And I told her that for me, that belly tingling, as we call it, and feeling nauseous are almost the same thing. She told me that for her, these feelings were absolutely different. That made me curious, and I tried looking the two feelings up together on Google, and it seems like I'm the only one who feels that way because the only stuff that came up was people feeling aroused by disgusting things. Hmm. But that's not the case at all for me. I just confuse the feelings regularly. We'll talk about this. For example, there was this quite uncomfortable guy in the subway who would always make these gross noises with his nose in his mouth and I had this weird sensory feeling like tingling in my lower belly area. It felt exactly the same way as arousal, even though I was clearly disgusted. Also, the other way around, when I get aroused by something, I always get scared that I'm going to have to throw up. It just feels so similar. I'm in therapy and I have complex PTSD diagnosis without any explicit memories of trauma, though. I don't know if this is just really weird or a trauma response, maybe. I don't even know if anybody understands anything. I've just written. I would love to hear your thoughts about this. Thanks for everything you do. Greetings from Germany and sorry for any mistakes I made. Your English is impeccable, by the way. You had no mistakes. Um, but great question. Now, my therapist spidey senses are like, I wonder about sexual abuse. Because if you arousal makes you want to throw up, I have a feeling that might have been your response as a child. I've heard not to get too explicit here. Heard from so many of my patients and viewers over the years that um, being forced to perform, se- you know, uh, some sexual acts like oral sexual acts makes us throw up. We gagged and we threw up. So that could be that connection there, or it could be because of the abuse in general. It makes you nauseous. You want to throw up. That's a, a very common trauma response. And I'm I'm sorry if that is the case. I know you don't have those memories. That's just my. My gut reaction is that. Now, also, I'm always curious about like connections in our body, and I don't, those organs aren't that far from one another, right? But it's just very interesting that the nausea and feeling aroused or the feeling grossed out. for I Because at first when I was reading this, I was like, maybe there's something, you know, we should get checked out by a doctor just to make sure nothing's wrong, which I always encourage because we want to make sure there isn't some other reason that this is happening, right? So please do that. However, the fact that when you feel disgusted, it feels the same. I think there's some trauma connection there. I think there's some kind of pairing that happened when we were younger that we just haven't realized yet, right? We haven't recognized it because the memories are repressed or spotty at best, or maybe don't exist fully, right? And so it can be hard for us to make sense of it. Um, It might be helpful. I mean, you're still working with your therapist, continue doing that. You might, I mean, let her know about this and that this is happening. Nothing's weird or wrong with you. We just have to figure out where it's coming from and why those two are so connected for you. Again, I think going to the doctor is always a good thing because who knows what could be causing this. I'm not a physician, so maybe there are some reasons um, that that's our connection. I suspect trauma. Maybe the Courage to Heal workbook could be helpful for you once we're kind of in that process. It helps with childhood sexual abuse if that's what happened. Um it sounds like that to me. And that would be my suspicion. But again, be curious, not judgmental. We're going to figure it out. Nothing's wrong with you. You're not broken. We will sort this. Um, I just have a feeling that it's, it's coming from that kind of a place because why else would those two kind of different feelings or experiences be so like inextricably linked for you? Where like, even if you do like someone, you're like, I oh, know, I think I'm going to throw up, right? That doesn't To me, that doesn't quite make sense unless there's some kind of trauma connection. So let your therapist know. Let's be curious and see what we find out, okay? I love you all. Have a wonderful, wonderful rest of your week. Thank you for sending in your questions. Thank you for just being so wonderful and sharing this podcast. I'm glad it's helpful for you guys. I love doing it. Take care of yourselves and I'll see you next time. Bye.